Prologue Part Two of I Will Repay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Ortsy. Prologue Part Two. The head of the House of Marny was at this time barely seventy years of age, but he had lived every hour, every minute of his life from the day when the grand monarch gave him his first appointment as gentleman page in waiting when he was a mere lad barely twelve years of age to the moment some ten years ago now when nature's relentless hand struck him down in the midst of his pleasures withered him in a flash as she does a sturdy old oak and nailed him a cripple almost a dotard to the invalid chair which he would only quit for his last resting-place juliet was then a mere slip of a girl an old man's child the spoilt darling of his last happy years she had retained some of the melancholy which had characterized her mother the gentle lady who had endured him so patiently who had bequeathed this final tender burden her baby girl to the brilliant handsome young man whom she had so deeply loved and so often forgiven when the duc de marny entered the final awesome stage of his gilded career that death-like life which he dragged on for ten years wearily to the grave juliet became his only joy his one gleam of happiness in the midst of torturing memories in her deep tender eyes he would see mirrored the present the future for her and would forget his past with all its gaieties its mad merry years that meant nothing now but bitter regrets and endless rosary of the might of bins and then there was the boy the little vicomte the future duc de marny who would in his life and with his youth recreate the glory of the family and make france once more ring with the echo of brave deeds and gallant adventures which had made the name of marny so glorious in camp and court the vicomte was not his father's love but he was his father's pride and from the depths of his huge cushioned armchair the old man would listen with delight to stories from versailles and paris the young queen and the fascinating Lamballe the latest play and the newest star in the theatrical firmament his feeble tottering mind would then take him back along the past of memory to his own youth and his own triumphs and in the joy and pride in his son he would forget himself for the sake of the boy when they brought the vicomte home that night juliette was the first to wake she heard the noise outside the great gates the coach slowly drawing up the ring for the doorkeeper and the sound of matthew's mutterings who never liked to be called up in the middle of the night to let anyone through the gates somehow a presentiment of evil at once struck the young girl the footsteps sounded so heavy and muffled along the flat courtyard and up the great oak staircase it seemed as if they were carrying something heavy something inert or dead she jumped out of bed and hastily wrapped a cloak around her thin girlish shoulders and slipped her feet into a pair of heelless shoes then she opened her bedroom door and looked out upon the landing two men whom she did not know were walking upstairs abreast two more were carrying a heavy burden and matthew was behind moaning and crying bitterly juliette did not move she stood in the doorway rigid as a statue the little cortege went past her no one saw her for the landings in the hotel de marny were very wide and matthew's lantern only threw a dim flickering light upon the floor the men stopped outside the vicomte's room matthew opened it and then the five men disappeared within with their heavy burden a moment later old patronel who had been juliette's nurse and was now her devoted slave came to her all bathed in tears she had just heard the news and she could scarcely speak but she folded the young girl her dear pet lamb in her arms and rocking herself to and fro she sobbed and eased her aching motherly heart but juliette did not cry it was all so sudden so awful she at fourteen years of age had never dreamed of death and now there was her brother her philippe 
in whom she had so much joy and so much pride. He was dead, and her father must be told. The awfulness of this task seemed to Juliet like unto the last judgment day, a thing so terrible, so appalling, so impossible, that it would take a host of angels to proclaim its inevitableness. The old cripple, with one foot in the grave, whose whole feeble mind, whose pride, whose final flicker of hope was concentrated in this boy, must be told that the lad had been brought home dead. "'Will you tell him, Petronelle?' she asked repeatedly, during the brief intervals when the violence of the old nurse's grief subsided somewhat. "'No, no, darling, I cannot. I cannot,' moaned Petronelle, amidst a renewed shower of sobs. Juliet's entire soul, a child's soul it was, rose in revolt at the thought of what was before her. She felt angered with God for having put such a thing upon her. What right had he to demand a girl of her years to endure such mental agony? To lose her brother and to witness her father's grief, she couldn't, she couldn't, she couldn't. God was evil and unjust. A distant tinkle of a bell made all her nerves suddenly quiver. Her father was awake then. He had heard the noise and was ringing his bell to ask for an explanation of the disturbance. With one quick movement, Juliet jerked herself free from the nurse's arms, and before Petronelle could prevent her, she had run out of the rooms, straight across the dark landing to a large panelled door opposite. The old Duke de Marny was sitting on the edge of his bed, with his long, thin legs dangling helplessly to the ground. Crippled as he was, he had struggled to this upright position, which he was making frantic, miserable efforts to raise himself still further. He, too, had heard the dull thud of feet, the shuffling gait of men when carrying a heavy burden. His mind flew back half a century, to the days when he had witnessed scenes wherein he was then merely a half-interested spectator. He knew the cortege composed of valets and friends, with the leech walking beside that precious burden, which anon would be deposited on the bed and left to the tender care of a mourning family. Who knows what pictures were conjured up by that enfeebled vision, but he guessed, and when Juliet dashed into his room and stood before him, pale, trembling, a world of misery in her great eyes, she knew that he guessed, and she need not tell him. God had already done that for her. Pierre, the old duke's devoted valet, dressed him as quickly as he could. Monsieur le duc insisted on having as habitant de ceremonie the rich suit of black velvet with the priceless lace and diamond buttons, which he had worn when they laid le roi soleil to his eternal rest. He put on his orders and buckled on his sword. The gorgeous clothes, which had suited him so well in the prime of his manhood, hung somewhat loosely on his attenuated frame, but he looked a grand and imposing figure, with his white hair tied behind with a great black bow, and the fine jabot of beautiful Pointe d'Angleterre falling in a soft cascade below his chin. Then holding himself as upright as he could, he sat in his invalid chair, and four flunkies in full livery carried him to the deathbed of his son. All the house was astir by now. Torches burned in great sockets in the vast hall and along the massive oak stairway, and hundreds of candles flickered ghost-like in the vast apartments of the princely mansion. The numerous servants were arrayed on the landing, all dressed in the rich livery of the ducal house. The death of an heir of the Marnies is an event that history makes a note of. The old duke's chair was placed close to the bed, where lay the dead body of the young vicomte. He made no movement, nor did he utter a word or sigh. Some of those who were present at the time declared that his mind had completely given away, and that he neither felt nor understood the death of his son. The Marquis de Villefranche, who had followed his friend to the last, took a final leave of the sorrowing house. Juliette scarcely noticed him. Her eyes were fixed on her father. She would not look at her brother. A childlike fear had seized her, there, suddenly, between those two silent figures, the living and the dead. But just as the Marquis was leaving the room, the old man spoke for the first time. 
"'Marquis,' he said very quietly, "'you forget. You have not yet told me who killed my son.' "'It was in a fair fight, Monsieur de Duc,' replied the young Marquis, awed in spite of all of his frivolity, his light-heartedness, by this strange, almost mysterious tragedy. "'Who killed my son, Monsieur le Marquis?' repeated the old man mechanically. "'I have the right to know,' he added with sudden, weird energy. "'It was Monsieur Paul de Relais, Monsieur le Duc,' replied the Marquis. "'I repeat, it was in fair fight.' The old duke sighed as if in satisfaction. Then, with a courteous gesture of farewell reminiscent of the grand cycle, he added, "'All thanks from me and mine to you, Marquis, would seem but a mockery. Your devotion to my son is beyond human thanks. I'll not detain you now. Farewell.' Escorted by two lackeys, the Marquis passed out of the room. "'Miss all the servants, Juliet. I have something to say,' said the old duke, and the young girl, silent, obedient, did as her father bade her. Father and sister were alone with their dead, as soon as the last hushed footsteps of the retreating servants died away in the distance. The Duc de Marny seemed to throw away the lethargy which had enveloped him until now. With a quick, feverish gesture he seized his daughter's wrist and murmured excitedly, "'His name! You heard his name, Juliet!' "'Yes, father,' replied the child. "'Paul de Relade! Paul de Relade! You'll not forget it!' "'Never, father!' "'He killed your brother!' You understand that? Killed my only son, the hope of my house, the last descendant of the most glorious race that ever added luster to the history of France. In fair fight, father, protested the child. It is not fair for a man to kill a boy, retorted the old man with furious energy. Desrelade is thirty. My boy was scarce out of his teens. May the vengeance of God fall upon the murderer. Juliet, awed, terrified, was gazing at her father with great, wondering eyes. He seemed unlike himself. His face wore a curious expression of ecstasy, and of hatred, also of hope and exultation, whenever he looked steadily at her. That the final glimmer of a tottering reason was fast leaving the poor, aching head she was too young to realize. Madness was a word that only had a vague meaning for her. Though she did not understand her father at the present moment, though she was half afraid of him, she would have rejected with scorn and horror any suggestion that he was mad. Therefore, when he took her hand, and, drawing her near to the bed and to himself, placed it upon her dead brother's breast, she recoiled at the touch of the inanimate body, so unlike anything she had ever touched before. But she obeyed her father without any question, and listened to his words as to those of a sage. Juliet, you are now fourteen and able to understand what I am going to ask of you. If I were not chained to this miserable chair, if I were not a hopeless, abject cripple, I would not depute any one, not even you, my only child, to do that which God demands that one of us should do. He paused a moment, then continued earnestly, Remember, Juliet, that you are of the house of Marnie, that you are a Catholic, and that God hears you now. For you shall swear an oath before him and me, an oath from which only death can relieve you. Will you swear, my child? If you wish it, father. You have been to confession lately, Juliet? "'Yes, father, also to Holy Communion yesterday,' replied the child. "'It was the fête due, you know.' "'Then you are in a state of grace, my child.' "'I was yesterday morning, father,' replied the young girl naively. "'But I have committed some little sin since then.' "'Then make your confession to God in your heart now. "'You must be in a state of grace when you speak the oath.' The child closed her eyes, and, as the old man watched her, he could see the lips framing the words of her spiritual confession. Juliet made the sign of the cross, then opened her eyes and looked at her father. "'I am ready, father,' she said. "'I hope God has forgiven me the little sins of yesterday.' "'Will you swear, my child?' "'What, father?' "'That you will avenge your brother's death on his murderer.' "'But, father!' "'Swear it, my child.' "'How can I fulfill that oath, father? 
I don't understand. God will guide you, my child. When you are older, you will understand. For a moment, Juliette still hesitated. She was just on that borderland between childhood and womanhood, when all the sensibilities, the nervous system, the emotions are strung to their highest pitch. Throughout her short life she had worshipped her father with a whole-hearted, passionate devotion which had completely blinded her to his weakening faculties and the feebleness of his mind. She was also in that initial stage of enthusiastic piety which overwhelms every girl of temperament if she be brought up in the Roman Catholic religion when she is first initiated into the mysteries of the sacraments. Juliet had been to confession and communion. She had been confirmed by Monseigneur the Archbishop. Her ardent nature had responded to the full to the sensuous and ecstatic expressions of the ancient faith. And somehow her father's wish, her brother's death, all seemed mingle in her brain with that religion, for which, in her juvenile enthusiasm, she would willingly have laid down her life. She thought of all the saints whose lives she had been reading. Her young heart quivered at the thought of their sacrifices, their martyrdoms, their sense of duty. An exaltation, morbid perhaps, superstitious and overwhelming, took possession of her mind. Also, perhaps, far back in the innermost recesses of her heart, a pride in her own importance, her mission in life, her individuality, for she was a girl, after all, a mere child, about to become a woman. But the old duke was waxing impatient. Surely you do not hesitate, Juliet, with your dead brother's body clamoring mutely for revenge. You, the only Marnie left now, for from this day I too shall be as dead. No, father, said the young girl in an awed whisper, I do not hesitate. I will swear, just as you bid me. Repeat the words after me, my child. Yes, father. Before the face of Almighty God, who sees and hears me. Before the face of Almighty God, who sees and hears me, repeated Juliet firmly. I swear that I will seek out Paul Desrouillades. I swear that I will seek out Paul Desrouillades. And in any manner which God may dictate to me encompass his death, his ruin or dishonor, in revenge for my brother's death. And in any manner which God may dictate to me encompass his death, his ruin or dishonor in revenge for my brother's death, said Juliet solemnly. May my brother's soul remain in torment until the final judgment day if I should break my oath, but may it rest in eternal peace the day on which his death is fitly avenged. May my brother's soul remain in torment until the final judgment day if I should break my oath, but may it rest in eternal peace the day on which his death is fitly avenged. The child fell upon her knees. The oath was spoken, the old man was satisfied. He called for his valet and allowed himself quietly to be put to bed. One brief hour had transformed a child into a woman, a dangerous transformation when the brain is overburdened with emotions, when the nerves are overstrung and the heart full to breaking. For the moment, however, the childlike nature reasserted itself for the last time, for Juliette, sobbing, had fled out of the room to the privacy of her own apartment, and thrown herself passionately into the arms of kind old Patronel. End of Prologue Part 2